Hey everyone, this is Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. This week, I'm chatting with Demetrios Brinkman. Demetrios is the creator of the MLOps community, the largest MLOps community that exists. If you're not a part of it, you should definitely check it out. You can go to mlops.community and join the Slack channel there. So Demetrios has been the leading voice in the MLOps world since the early days. He has his own podcast. He talks all the time on MLOps. He kind of is connected and knows everyone. He's also a famous ukulele player. So it's really fun to be able to flip the stage on him and be able to interview him this time. Demetrios, man, it's so great to have you on the show. What's going on, Simba? It's been a little bit. I think I saw you, what, like a month ago? Maybe a few Data weeks. Break Summit. There we yeah, go. It's probably a few weeks ago. I feel like I should be playing the ukulele right now for like an intro or something. I feel like it's, I'm flipping it on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can end that way. Maybe that's how we should end this. Well, we have a ton to cover. There's a lot changing in the world. We can start by maybe you could give a state of the world. LMs are a thing now. MLOps is still a thing. Like, what's happening right now? What's your perspective on the state of the world? <laughs> I wonder if I'm like holding on to a dying breed with the MLOps. I always ask people, do I need to rebrand in LLM ops after talking to certain people and hearing how different VCs feel about the MLOps market and how MLOps is. I think a lot of people got burnt by what happened there. So LLM ops feels like the new frontier. And even if you are doing MLOps, you say you're doing LLM ops so you can get funding. And I'm not sure if that exactly answers the question, but it gets to it in a bit of a roundabout way as far as Yeah, LLMs are here. They've got a lot of traction. They've got a lot of hype around them and they're garnering a lot of attention. So, you know, obviously I've been in startups long enough. You've seen enough that we kind of understand what you mean by a lot of people, especially investors got burnt on MLOps. But maybe you could zoom in on that. So I'll try not to call anybody out or if I do directly, we might have to bleep it later. But (laughs) I think that what you see is the use cases in the market was projected to be X amount by 2022, 2023. And especially if you were an investor in 2018 and you were looking at the way that ML was growing and the use cases were growing and you made your financial projections on top of that, you valued companies at a much different rate than they've grown over the past five, six years. And so when you see how ML has grown, it's just been incredibly hard. And the use cases, I don't think, have bloomed and blossomed as much as VC's spreadsheets said they were going to yet. I don't think that it's not going to. I just think it's been slower than what we thought. So because of that, you get people that are not so excited about the market and the whole ability of this market to be the rocket ship that they thought it once was. Yeah, there's a saying, and I forget, I think it's Turkish, but I heard it once, and I'm going to say it badly, but it was stuck with me, it's funny, where once you burn your tongue on hot milk, you will blow on ice cream. It's kind of like once you burn yourself, it's just like anything that sort of kind of feels like that again will kind of trigger that same reaction. I guess it's interesting to think about the last two years, there was kind of this, obviously, this big boom cycle. A lot of money got deployed, and a lot of people were looking for like, in your own words, like, what is the frontier? And obviously, we have like a deep look at MLOps. But if you talk to people in like fintech, 
and like a variety of other verticals. They'll tell you the exact same story of everyone got in over reverse skis. At that time, it felt like anyone could be a $10 billion company. And now when you look at the public markets and you're like, oh, like Twilio and like these huge companies that we view as like behemoths are like not worth 10 billion or maybe like around 10 billion. And it's like, you need to be like that to justify that valuation. All of a sudden you look at your spreadsheets again and you're just like, oh, <laughs> like the math doesn't work anymore. And I think that's what we yeah, kind of saw. much harder. Yeah. There's a guy I like, his name is Jason Lemkin. He talks about disaster and the way he describes it, which I like is he's like, for those two years, for the first time, it felt like SaaS was kind of easy. Like it felt doable. And we were all reminded that, nope, it's really, really hard. Um, and I think that's kind of what we saw. I mean, there's just no, even in DevOps, right? Which is something that I think we have seen a lot of public companies come out of. It feels like uh, if you think of how many DevOps companies existed originally, there's like hundreds, thousands probably. And like how many are actually public companies that returned like substantial capital? It's actually a small percentage. And I think that's typical. But I think for some reason, MLOps, there was this weird feeling that, oh yeah, there's going to be like 25 public MLOps companies, which just was never going to happen. So what's your sense now? So it seems like there's kind of this investment style counter reaction to MLOps. Talking about all MLOps, does it feel like we're repeating the same cycle there? Does it feel different? What's your sense of things? Well, I think I will caveat this with like, I am still all in on MLOps and I still feel that there is a lot of big open questions and a lot of really important things that are happening in that field that despite it not being the investor's darling anymore, there's a lot happening and there's a lot of great stuff that is going on. What I do see with the LLMs is that it just basically took the ability for someone to go from zero to one it amplified that and turned it up to 11, as they say. And so all of a sudden now, you can, without knowing much about how machine learning works, or maybe you don't know anything, you can just hit an API and get some AI plugged into your product. And so now you have a lot of people coming at this field from different disciplines, which is, for me, it's really cool to see because you have different minds and a lot of diversity and ways of thinking and ways of attacking problems that are much different than if it were only in the hands of data scientists or data engineers and ML engineers, obviously, too. Yeah, one thing I found very fascinating for us is our LLM framework is Python-based because all our MLOP stuff is Python-based. And the percentage of people using JavaScript for kind of building AI applications totally caught me off guard. And it makes sense in the same way you're describing that these are not data scientists moving to LLMs. These are kind of more full stack looking people who are pivoting towards LLMs. And I think it's more product oriented, which is kind of interesting. I guess what's the flip side of that? Like it does, and I know like on the products we've seen, like there's, it seems like there's maybe if there's a diversity of the amount of products, maybe the depth isn't there? Or I guess, what are you seeing on that side? Like, are these products coming out like game-changing? Where are the game-changing ones? What are you seeing most of around the actual things being built today? Well, I think one thing that has been fascinating for me, and it really makes me realize the value of the product mindset and the product people within the business is all of a sudden, anyone has been thrust into that position. So it doesn't matter really where you sit, but if 
AI and this incredibly new capability that's very powerful is just an API call away and you can incorporate that into your product, you have to think about things in a different way and you have to think with that product mindset and what's the lowest hanging fruit and how am I really going to define this for the end user of those? Like, What's the best user experience that we can create with this new tool in our tool belt? But going back to the question, I think one thing that's been incredibly clear is there's the like application layer now. And so whereas with MLOps, I think it was very hard to define a clear stack. With LLM ops, you are seeing a clear stack form. And when we put in the report, like the survey that we did a few months ago, it became like really clear when we asked people what tools are they using with their LLMs in production, there was a standardization around those tools and you had different layers and different levels. And so that is one piece. But then when it comes to the applications and is there things that are interesting coming out as applications, I'm not necessarily sure that the applications themselves, like besides, of course, every day you hear about some mind-blowing product on Twitter and then you go to use it and it doesn't work quite like it said it would. But I do think that there are a lot of new ways of looking at how we're using LLMs. And of course, chat-based may not be the best experience for a lot of these use cases. And so how can you go beyond chat? One guy who was at the LLMs in production conference that we did, the virtual conference, Linus Lee, he talked about interfaces with LLMs beyond chat. And so there's these ideas as far as like, instead of saying you can have the whole world and some with whatever it is that you're trying to incorporate this LLM into, how can you minimize that and make it very, very intuitive for the user? And he was doing this at Notion, which brings me to the next point, which is that the real winners of the whole AI revolution, I think, are the ones who already have the distribution and they're incorporating AI features into their products that are already killing it. It's not the AI native products that are being built like you saw with Lenza that came out a few weeks after like the AI photo of myself or generate a profile photo of me. And that whole, I think there was probably like three or four copycats that shows you how, A, it's pretty easy to get something going with it if you find a nice little use case. But B, it's also easy to have a lot of competition really quickly. And so, in my opinion, you have to have the product, you have to have the distribution, and then you have to think very, very carefully, as we were mentioning before, with that like product mindset and that, that hat on, as to how you're going to bring AI features into the product that everyone already knows and loves. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. The thing that a lot of people maybe have missed a little bit with this wave is that unlike past technological waves, every incumbent is fully aware of how big a change this is. And two, they're sometimes moving faster than the startups. Like we're seeing these big companies get out their like GPT inspired features, like sometimes at the same time as the startup that's only been building that. And they'll build it way more like at a much higher level because they have data, they have more engineers on it. They're kind of committing. My sense is kind of a lot of 
companies and startups I've seen, I would describe them as like something that exists with AI sprinkled on. It's almost like, uh, oh, it's like Notion, but like with AI. It's like, well, Notion is going to build Notion, but with AI. So I think the only places where we will see it is when the moat is more like, like Notion can sprinkle AI on, but they can't rebuild from scratch as an AI. Like what would Notion look like if it was kind of LLM centric? Like if it was using a workflow that more, and I don't know what that is. And I know it's kind of whoever answers that question may or may not build a really, really big company. But I think it's like there's companies that are just were never possible before. And like Lens is an example of that. But you need to also do that in a way that it has enough complexity and depth. That's not a toy. So I almost think of like, what's a workflow? Like if you look at sales, right? I feel like I know like 4,000 people building like an AI for sales type company. And most of them are just like, well, how about Salesforce adds this? Or how about if whoever, like uh, outreach adds this? And the answer is kind of like, well, it's similar, but we'll move faster. And it's like, you won't. <laughs> They're moving just as fast. And I think it's more like, how if you were to reimagine the CRM and not make it like, what would that problem in solving look like if it was solved natively with an LLM? And again, it might there might be nothing there. And I'm sure in a lot of the verticals, there will be something. And I think that's where the big companies will come from. Well, do you think the big companies have been able to incorporate AI into their products so quickly because that's just like another testament for why this AI revolution has come on so strong is because it is so easy to get up and running and incorporate AI into your products? I think it's exactly right. I think when you think of like ML, when it kind of started like even recommender systems, et cetera, it took kind of a while for companies to sort of catch up and do a decent job. Imagine it was as easy to go like tech native and like the dot-com era. You know, maybe Amazon would just be Walmart. And I think in the AI world, it's like Amazon was built in a way that it was just like really truly like dot It feels funny now, it's been so long, but it's like it was truly like dot-com native. Like it was internet native. And I wonder what companies are going to be AI native today. And it's much easier, like the bar is higher. You need to revolutionize something or revolutionize the workflow in a much more dramatic way. And I also think you have to do it in a way that doesn't replace people, which is the other thing I see is like the most, the more revolutionary LLM companies are more like, we'll replace this whole function. And I just don't believe LLMs are there yet. I'm not even like against like, like the idea of like, hey, like if we can automate everything out and like me and Demetrius can go to surf on an olive farm in Italy all day and not have to worry about anything, like I'm for it. So I'm not against the idea. I mean, there's like going to be a really painful period in between, but it's more like the augmentation is kind of where we're at. And I think where the biggest use cases and value is coming from is how do we make people, even my engineers, everyone, my engineers use GPT. It makes them significantly better at their roles in the sense of like a lot of hard problems, you can just end up banging your head against the wall for like a few days, a week. And being able to just have this Oracle, we literally call it the Oracle <laughs> that we talk to. And it can make you maintain a very consistent pace of getting stuff out and not getting stuck and making sure you do things right. And beyond just like the, oh yeah, like it's automating. It does automate a little bit, like automates writing some form of tests, but it's not really where I think the value has come from as much. I hear a lot of people talk about like, yeah, we need to rebuild from the ground up with this AI first mentality. And I'm a little bit like with the crypto scene where it's like everything needs to be decentralized. And I feel like it's kind of that same thought that goes through my head that went through my head back in the crypto days as far as like, 
but is everything better if it's decentralized? I don't know about that. And is every experience better if it's like AI native? What does that even mean really? It's something that you can say and people are like, it's going to get there in a few years. So then you'll understand. But right now we just got to make the building blocks for it and rethink how it works. And I'm a little bit like, "Eh, okay, I guess either I can't see around the corner or I'm just too skeptical. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I think that like the same way I was skeptical of crypto of like, it's almost like you're describing an end state. And I'm not sure the end state's a thousand times better than the current state. And because of that, it's not really clear how we're going to get there because it's kind of a binary. It's not binary, but just you need to have value along the way. It needs to be a path. It has to be incremental. And I think you're right that there's a lot of hype and a lot of just like grandiose claims. But I think there are some like simple, like I think data analytics. If you think of how different data analytics is when you can ask an LLM for like hypotheses of like, hey, like this is kind of what my data looks like. Like give me some things that you think I should think about. You know, and it's just like, oh, that's a good idea. That's not a good idea. Oh, this makes you think of this other good idea. You start thinking of like what my day-to-day life would look like as a data analyst of like an oracle that's very confident and sometimes right, but usually in like some sort of generic area of rightness. And so you can't trust it fully. It's not like you can just tell it, go do the thing, but you can use it to help you work better. And so that will dramatically change a data analytics process, things that used to be really, really important become less important, even for writing. When I write, I use GPT constantly. So it's like, what would my workflow look like if rather than switching between these two tabs and rather than just like, oh, I have in my Google Doc, I hit a thing and I generate a summary. You know, is there something that is more natural and that will just, yeah. yeah. And I don't know what it is. And I don't think a lot of people do. And I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it this way, which I think is part of the problem. Going to what you're saying, even in MLOps, I think one of the biggest problems that we ran into was there wasn't really a lot of product-oriented founders who like came into the scene. It was very like tech-oriented founders and very sales-oriented founders. And I think what we were missing was just really, really, really good products. And there were very few in MLOps. And I think in LMs, we're going to see the same thing. There'll be this rush of money and there'll be a lot of shitty products. There'll be a lot of hypey products that sell a lot and then kind of disappear. There'll be a lot of products that are like you need a PhD to understand and definitely aren't going to be driving value. And then there'll be this middle layer, which will be the rare ones that actually accomplish the goal, in my opinion. You buy that? What do you think? Yeah, I can see that. And I think that happens, of course. Like we're in one of the sectors that is still getting heavily funded despite the current economic period. And I think that's probably why there's so many people that are going into this field. And again, if you can go into the field and you don't need the PhD in machine learning to understand everything, the barrier to entry is much lower. And so I could definitely see what you're talking about. I also just want to go back to what you were saying with the idea of these like apps that are going to be much more harmonious with how we do things and what we want to do. I was just thinking about how probably like some of the biggest pains that I have, it's not that AI could fix it. It's that I just am switching from a million different tools and tabs and portals on my computer. And one of my biggest pains is that I have to enter in my password every once in a while and be like, oh, because it's through this, like whatever app, it doesn't remember it from my password manager. And then 
tell me like, AI is not built for that kind of stuff. It's not going to save me from that. And we're still struggling with those kind of things. So I'm a bit skeptical that like AI is going to revolutionize the world in the way that we think or as much as we think until we can figure out how I can get my damn password manager to work inside of my apps on my phone. Once Zoom works consistently and we don't have people talking when they're muted, then we've earned the right to like revolutionize the world of AI <laughs> one oh, step at a time. Man. Let's dig into there a bit. I mean, let's talk about ML. ML, is it boring now? Are we done? Is it going away? What happens now? I think I told you this before we hit record. One of the dirty truths right now is that what my intuition is, is that the majority of the money being made in this AI world is being made by companies that are executing on their ML use cases. And they have strong ML teams and they're proving out value for their companies or enterprises with machine learning. And maybe it's not this sexy AI and they can't talk about the newest models that they're using or how they have a billion parameters or trillion parameters, whatnot. But it is very valuable to the company in ways that there's a few use cases that they have proven themselves over the years to be strong use cases for ML. Now, is it as many as we thought five years ago? Maybe not. But I think it's pretty clear that like recommender systems are vital for companies that use recommender systems. Yeah. I mean, fraud detection, generic anomaly detection, obviously recommenders. It's kind of a set of use cases that we see pretty much at every company. Every Fortune 500 has like multiple teams doing these things. And in the NLP space, I think we'll see like bigger dramatic shifts. But I just coming from a background recommender systems, like there are interesting use cases where you can use LLMs, but I don't think a core recommender system like the YouTube sidebar is going to change at all because of the existence of LLMs for a variety of reasons from it's not the right tool for the job. It actually probably won't do as well. And it's too slow, too expensive. Like it is really, really expensive to run these things. Like think of how much money OpenAI burns on every single call you make, even if you're paying them. Like they're taking a huge dent for like data collection and kind of just generic market capture. But yeah, I think ML, actually the other, the other piece of this I've seen, maybe I don't know if you've quite seen this area of it, is that where VCs are investing heavily, like they're kind of thinking, okay, what's going to give me returns in 10 years? That's how they have to think. Which one of these companies are going to return $10 billion? And we've just talked about how those are, have to be exceptional. Like you can't just be like another CRM. So if you think of it with that lens, it kind of makes sense that AI looks like the one, one of the very few frontiers where you will really see like these kind of the next Google type company come out of. So it does make sense that they're investing there. Is there enough quality companies to like kind of make the money going in makes sense? Maybe not, but it seems like we'll see. But I think on the other end, if you think of C-level people at large enterprises, they're doing the same thing, but they're doing it in a different way. Like they have budget and we're like, where are we investing our budget? We've both seen that like they're investing a lot of budget into AI. Every company, every Fortune 500 has had the CEO go on, on stage publicly and be like, we are investing in AI. Yes, now the, they have to. Yeah, they have to. And the stock problem, price. yeah, exactly. It's a great way to make your stock go up. But I think the thing that we've seen is like, let's say you're a major bank. You have $100 million you want to invest into AI. Like you literally can't put that to use for LMs. Like it just, there's not enough there yet. Like you can put together like a specialist, team, especially when every other company is doing that too. You're competing with all of them for talent. 
and for other things. So I think what we'll see and what we're seeing, uh, what we're personally seeing at, at FeatureForm is they're kind of putting like 90% of that budget to like traditional ML use cases because they know they'll see ROI there. And they kind of view that it's an extension and a continuation and not necessarily a heartbreak of like, oh, all this stuff is deprecated now. AI is the future. I think they view it more as, well, if we get our data in order and we get models in production, we can view LLMs as a special kind of model as opposed to a whole new paradigm. The same way I think that deep learning didn't necessarily destroy random forests. They're still around. They're still everywhere. They're probably the most deployed model in the world is like some form of a random forest. And I don't think that will change. It's so funny you mentioned this idea of ROI because going back to that survey we did, and the survey was like, we had a bunch of people that were using or not using LLMs in production. They filled out a lot of questions and the questions were very open-ended and we gave them just a free text box to respond, which I later learned isn't the best way to do that. It's uh, a lot more work on the back end if you have 150 responses from people and whatever, 20 questions each and it's all just long text boxes that you have to read and interpret when you want to create some kind of report and try and standardize the answers and bucket them, I know for the next time, I'm not going to do that. But one thing that was blazingly clear was that it is not clear, it is not clear the ROI that you can get from bringing LLMs into your use cases. And let me break down why that is, because what people were saying is maybe there's a bunch of different incredible reasons for that, that people talked about. And one is saying, hey, you know what? We add an AI feature to our product like ChatGPT call and it enriches our product, but we can't charge any more for our product. So now we just cut our margin because we have to pay for the ChatGPT calls. However, then other people say, well, we're focusing on affecting XYZ metrics. And we see that if we can affect this metric by adding AI to our product suite, then we'll have better conversion rates and that will pay for itself. On the other hand, it's also not clear if you're going to bring the models in-house, how you can justify the ROI of creating a whole new stack and having people that understand how to use and serve these models and do everything. So the resources that you're deploying. And then the last thing is like, how do I justify the time and energy that I'm putting into this and that I'm not working on something else? So there's all kinds of great questions around the ROI of using large language models. I think people are having a really hard time just bringing it up and championing it and giving a clear answer. But like you said, everyone and their mother has to have an AI story these days. So at this point in time, it doesn't really matter if you can't prove out the ROI. It's just how can we add AI to our business and our product? I think the technical flip side to that, which I've also seen, is the stupid patterns that we're seeing around how the systems actually look in practice because no one is actually measuring the quality of the predictions. And recommender systems, even back when I was doing it in 2016, 2017, like embeddings had become a core part of the process. So we've kind of been working with embeddings for this whole boom. So we've learned a lot of lessons in the recommender system space on how to think about and how to evaluate embeddings. 
And the other piece of like, especially like the RAG, so RAG, like the retrieval augmented generation style of LM systems, I think is kind of coming out as the winner, the core, the right way to do these things. And most companies, I think fine tuning has its place, but I think RAG is much more likely to find like 90% of deployments will look more like that than fine tuning. It's way less overhead too. Way less overhead. It's more complicated for sure, but I also think that there's a lot of issues that you don't run into with fine tuning. Like fine tuning, it doesn't memorize well. It more is like a style. It understands the style well, it won't memorize the numbers you put in. And oftentimes that's what you want it to do. Or when people use it, that's how they think that it works. They think of it like traditional training where you just, it remembers this thing. But really it's not. It's remembering the this kind of general flow of the sentences. And yeah, I think on the other side of fine tuning versus rag is a fine tuning, you run the risk of the text is kind of sort of embedded into the model. So if you have private text that you're using to fine tune, like I might be able to be like, it's the same way in, in, Jeep, in a co-pilot, people will sometimes start a comment of like a comment that they know exists and is kind of unique, and then it will spit out the exact paragraph of code. I think the same thing would happen in fine-tuned models. And so I think that where we'll see interesting value is going to be more in the RAG base, where you can really keep the context like literally to that request, and you can make it very, very clear. like what you. It, it becomes almost like a structured query, uh, which is what we're seeing, as opposed to a more training a model, which I think is fascinating. But I cut you off when it comes to the embeddings and the rags and how those are becoming the champions of this scene. Yeah, I think the evaluation is fascinating because the point of rag and like the more common, very like straight line use cases, like I have these documents, I chop them up, I embed them. When I make a query, I retrieve them. Or I retrieve n number of documents which are related to that query. This is in my opinion, like the hello world of how to do this. Like it's such a, it's not dumb, but it's like, if you really think about it, the goal of this thing is to contextualize your query, right? Like the goal of it is to add as much information that's relevant to the model to do its best work. That's a point of RAG. Just randomly chopping up documents and grabbing like N documents and just throwing it in and being like, job well done. I you know, I wrote five queries and it sort of looked better than like the generic one is not like the right way to do this. Like, I think we need to be thinking about, well, what's the maximum information gain for each document? The other thing that a lot of people I know aren't doing as much, but we're starting to see even like more traditional feature store use cases and this traditional key value data. Let's say you're building a financial bot. You're just trying to like, what should Simba do with his finances to retire by end day? You probably want to know my age. You probably want to know how much money I have. You probably want to know things that I maybe say about myself, like my risk appetite, my spending habits. How much do I spend on avocado toast and lattes? Probably too much. But like when you think of all that stuff, like those are not vector DB operations. There's kind of this funny like graph database sort of solution. And it's like a lot of these answers are just like a SQL databases solution. Like we just need to contextualize our queries properly. And we just don't even know how to do that. Which is a problem to be solved, but I think the bigger problem, which I'm more trying to solve first, is people to realize what they're even doing here. I think we're just following a pattern blindly, being like, well, like embeddings are magic, so it works. And embeddings are magic, don't get me wrong, but not they, anyone who's in recommender systems can tell you that sometimes they do really, really crazy and dumb things. <laughs> Dude, that's classic. And I think we will see as time goes on the improvements of using both LLMs and traditional 
machine learning together. And I really like that you brought up that point. I also wonder, because I know back in the day you had Embedding Hub, and that was almost like the first vector database in a way. You were a man before your time. What happened there? I never got the full story on that. Yeah, we still get hit up a lot about Embedding Hub. They have a document that I should probably change up. We were one of the first vector DBs. It's so funny too, because now everyone is running towards vector stores. And at that Databricks Summit, when we saw each other, I think just about every database company that was on the floor, they all were talking about their vector solution or vector store, vector DB part of their database. So anyway, yeah, like what's the story? What happened there? Yeah, so part of it is I saw that coming. So we kind of were early to it because I probably built a vector database like four times in my career. And I'm not the only one who's done that. I know even some of the vector DB companies, they were originally built not with LLMs in mind. They predated LLMs. Like you think of Weaviate, you think of Pinecones. Like these are not people who like predicted the RAG style coming into play. But very, we're much more focused on like recommender system style, NLP style, like more tr- even like semantic search, image search, those sorts of use cases. And so we viewed embeddings, it's a feature, the same way that your age is a feature. So we thought it was something that we needed a core database for. And where Redis and some of these other key value stores solved that part of the equation, at the time, none of them really had a good vector DB solution. Now, you know, Redis has a good one. And as you've mentioned, a lot of companies are coming out of good ones, the traditional databases. So we're kind of like, we need to build against something because we know the future is going here. And so we kind of were like, well, we can just build our own and build against that as the API. Now, it started to get its own traction, which is cool and interesting. And we actually decided to very much pick a path. We couldn't do both. Couldn't do the feature store and the vector DB. And we chose the feature store because to this day, we still view the problem of feature orchestration, feature metadata management, those sorts of problems, so organizational problems of data and features is the sharpest problem to solve. And the hardest one to solve, and also the one where I think there's the biggest company to be built. I think the problem with vector DBs, and again, why I moved away from it, what vector DB is in essence is you're taking an index, and indices existed back in the day, so it's not like we created our own index of doing approximate nearest neighbor. We just used one, same as all the other companies. But we built everything else that makes a database around it, so like durability, replication, all the things you'd expect from a normal database. And I just came to the conclusion that, hey, this index is hard to implement at a big database, but if the carrot is there, they can all do it and they'll all figure it out. And I think they'll all be able to do it better than at least my team would have been able to. We, don't, we aren't exactly database people. I wouldn't be able to take that, that algorithm of approximate nearest neighbor and really, really make it that much better. At least I didn't feel like we could do it better than these other PhDs who literally did their PhD in database systems. So we decided to cut it. And part of why we built it was for the same thing that we're still seeing, which is a lot of the problem space around LLMs seems to just be, I have documents, I need to break them up, I need to embed them, I need to do retrieval, I need to fit it together into a prompt. We've always defined features as an input to a model. So a prompt is just an input to a model so a type of feature, and embedding is a type of feature, and the analytical feature is a type of feature. So if you view us as this orchestrator above all of it, then that's the problem we solve, and embedding hub was just kind of a a thing we did to kind of solve our own need and build something to build against. We considered going with it and we just didn't view that there was a path forward that we were necessarily the right company to build. Uh, I see. 
Dude, it's fascinating to me because it is, you scratched your own itch, but then you realized, well, maybe it's not the best thing for us at this moment. We'll shelf it. And then all of a sudden it blew up like crazy. And I can't imagine you sitting there and being like, wait, vector stores are the biggest thing. They're, they're the coolest thing since sliced bread right now. What are we doing with Embedding Hub? What's funny is it never phased me and I never was tempted to bring Embedding Hub back from the dead. No. Because, yeah, I just, I was always doing long-term. Like, sure, like if I was rushing to get to a billion-dollar valuation on paper fastest, like, yeah, I'd be like, guys, Embedding Hub, we're going to go all in. I'm going to go talk to every VC. I'll go like do the Silicon Valley thing. I'll, I'll go and whatever. But it's not my goal. My goal is to build that big a company, but to build it right, which means to actually have revenue to back it up, actually have a company that is sustainable over a long period of time. It's always a big problem. I think that in the vector DB space, I think just a vector DB alone, in my opinion, the best thing that can happen if you're just that is you become kind of like, at best, like a Neo4j, which is great. I mean, Neo4j is a great company, but probably not the size and scale that a lot of these vector DBs are, are aiming for. And I think for them to become bigger, they need to kind of pivot to becoming these kind of generic retrieval databases, which does not just mean adding more indices. It means building something at a higher level of abstraction. I think Weviet's done a good job at this, but I still think that there's more to be done there where other companies have kind of stayed at the lower level. If you're going to stay at the lower level and you're Redis, it makes sense because Redis has everything. So they're kind of like, we're a database for everything. We just put your data in us and then you pay us a lot of money. But if you're a company that sits above that stack, or sits around that stack, it's a different game. So I guess if you think of things long, even MLOps, right? Like if I was trying to be like, and you as well, right? Like if you were trying to be like, what's the fastest way to get a ton of hype? Like you would have renamed MLOps community like yesterday. You would have put out articles like MLOps is dead, LMs are the future and stuff like that. But like you're pragmatic enough to see that, hey, you have to be on this. You can't ignore it. It's not going to go away and it's not fake. It's hard to make the crypto argument on AI, but we're still really early and we're definitely at the peak of a hype wave that will disappear. And then there'll be kind of a secondary wave where the actual ROI comes in, which is what we're seeing with MLOps. Funny enough, we're kind of in that second bump up. Like now people are actually buying MLOps. They weren't buying MLOps two years ago. Everyone was talking about it two years ago, but no one was signing checks. And now people are signing checks because it's become real. Yeah. And also, I think the maturity level, people know what they're looking for. They know where their pains are. And they also understand what's out there and what needs to be in your ML lifecycle. Whereas before, it was everything was so new that it was hard to get that information. And that's one thing that we tried to do is just make sure that people understand you need to think about your maturity when you're doing machine learning and you need to think about what is right for you in each point in time because I can't tell you how many times people would be like, yeah, it's me and and me on my team and I'm going to set up Kubeflow. And it's like, whoa, let's talk about that for a minute. Do you really need Kubeflow? Are you sure about that? Have you tried to play around with Kubeflow at all? <laughs> Maybe go and try and install it. See if it doesn't crash your computer a few times before you champion that one to your boss. Yeah. And actually, it's funny. You mentioned LLM ROI. Like the MLOps ROI story was the same thing. The early days of MLOps, everyone's kind of like, yeah, this is really interesting. We can't ignore it. It's obviously something that we know we're going to do one day, but we haven't fully understood the ROI yet. And now it's much more understood. It's boring. 
but that's where people spend money, right? Like most of the money these enterprises spend is on boring things that they understand really well. No big companies like, oh, I'm going to spend like 20% of my budget on like this super like crypto, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. And for good reason, because things need to get figured out now. Yeah. Anyway, I know we're actually at time and we actually, I feel like we should do another episode soon because I feel like there's still so much more I want to talk about. But I want to stick to time, so I'm going to cut us off for now. But Demetrius, thanks so much for coming on and answering all my questions and having this great conversation with me. Always a pleasure talking to you, Simba. I look forward to catching up with you in person and potentially seeing you at one of our different meetups around the globe. Yeah, I'll be there. 